0: Go to Genesis, back to chapter 3, actually, today, and we're going to keep moving through the Word. Um, i said this before, I say it every time, I want you to have a Bible, so snatch a Bible. If you don't have one, they're back there on the table, they're free, you could take one, two, four, I don't care. Uh, give them out, we have tons of them, so don't feel like you're going to take the last one or you're going to get one you shouldn't get, it doesn't matter whether they're hard back or soft back or whatever, take one. Uh, if you speak Spanish, there's Spanish back there, so... Use them or give them out where you got more. But it's important that you have the Bible because ultimately what I have to say is going to be great, I hope. (laughs) But it would only be what God says, and I hope that it would only spur you to dig in the Word. So if you don't have the Word with you, then ultimately you're just watching me talk and looking at a screen, which is fine. But ultimately I want you to take His Word with you. I want you to have it. So grab that. If you need something to write notes on or anything, there's a sheet back there. But go to chapter 3 of Genesis. We've been walking through kind of a chronology, the story of God. We're going to keep going. And your Bible is a library. If you didn't know that, it's not one book. It's 66 books and 40 different authors. So it's not in chronological order directly. It's categorized like a library would. So we're going to approach it, though, in chronological order as we go through. But it's a miracle, this book. Just a little side note. It's a miracle this book. You'll hear me say that a lot. It's one reason I want you to take it seriously. Having it, uh, just even that—66 books, 40 different authors, on three different written on three different continents in three different languages across 1,600 years of time—and they all say they saw the same person. That's pretty powerful. It's amazing. It's impossible, really, unless it's true. So every time you hold this, one thing I always remind myself and. Talking about this West African country is a reminder, too. Every time you pick this book up, remember there's blood on it. Like somebody bled to get it to you. Somebody bled to get it to you. Okay, so go to Genesis, first book of the Bible, third chapter. So about three pages in there somewhere, depending on how long your preface is. (laughs) Uh, Last week we talked about image. This week we're going to talk about fallen. Just one word, fallen. So go to chapter 3. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Slide on the shades here. And then we'll jump in. So verse 1, let's start right there. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree in the garden? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is awesome. I say this each week, and I mean it, Lord. I'm a student, too. I am not... Uh, The authority you are. Your word is the authority, Lord, and and I pray that anything that comes out of my mouth comes from yours, that I learn just like anybody else here learns because it's your word that speaks, not me. And God, I pray that we are challenged by what your word says, encouraged by what your word says, shaped by what your word says, Lord, that we're hungry to go back and look more into what your word says from what we talk about today, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Um. So the Super Bowl I was talking about earlier is coming up. Super Bowl has become more famous, I think, on some level for its commercials than it has for its actual game, you know, or the or the halftime show. But the commercials are a big deal, and there have been commercials over the years. If you've been around a while, you know several of them that have become epically famous just for a jingle or just for like a one-liner like where's the beef? Some of you are old enough to know what that one is. Some of you may not. You know, that automatically should put some image into your head. Or Frosted Lucky Charms, There, yeah, see, you can't help it, you can't help it, it's in your head, whether you say it or not, it's in there. Or uh, this one, somebody may know, the milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your, not in your hands, okay, we all got that one. So anyway, there's a lot of them, I could go on and on, there's a lot, probably one of the most famous, and still around today, I still see it occasionally, is I've fallen, and I can't get up. You know, and that's even been the source of all kinds of jokes and things, but it's catchy. It's stayed around. Today we're going to look at some people who have fallen and most definitely cannot get back up. And it's a result of a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Some think when you say the word falling, uh, it's only applicable to, to fall, to like stumbling or slipping off a ledge or something like that. But there's also falling in love, right? That's something different. That would be an emotional thing. Falling can be a complicated word. Sometimes we use it in terms of a silly action that we're all supposed to laugh at. And then other times it's a terrible thing where somebody might even have died. Uh, But in a biblical sense, falling is not meant to be understood that way. It's not merely that you slipped it's not you stumbled a few steps back from where you previously were, like you were doing really good, but you fell a few steps back. It's not that. It doesn't mean that you've dropped below some, to some level lower than where you started, and you're like everybody else who's just trying to get back to where you were. It's not, it's not what it means. There's only two positions that exist. And this is key, you'll hear it through the, as long as I talk the word. Two positions that exist, perfect and dead. That, that's it. Perfect and dead. That, that, that's all you got. Fallen means you transferred from one to the other. All right? You transferred from one of those places to the other. So when we say no one's perfect or we say all fall short, that means we all enter the story at fallen. We all come into the story at, at, at fallen. But that's not where we have to finish the story. All right? So, what caused the fall? Was it an apple? Was it Eve? Was it the devil? You know, was it his fault? First thing I want you to notice in this is that the very first thing is, did God say? Did God say? So remember as we walk through this that everything is centered around God's word. Everything in this is questioning God's word. Did God really say? And you got it on your sheets. I point this out every week because I want you to, if you take one point away, this is it. As we experience the reality of living in a fallen world, once you start to realize that this world is actually fallen, I think most of us know that pretty clearly. But when you start to experience the reality of it, more than ever, we need to be learning to know God's word, learning to know God's word, and how to trust him completely with our lives. That's that's not an easy thing to do even though it's, it's easy to say. But it's not easy to do. So verse 1. Let's go through it. Now the serpent was more crafty. That means like cunning. He was more crafty. He was cunning. Than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It tells you he's a special creation, this person, of God. He's not equal to the others. He's in some way above the other animals. And he says to the woman. So this is telling you that he speaks. Did God actually say you shall not eat any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat. Of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle or midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman you're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So is this the devil or is it a talking snake? You know. It's both. Literally the word there is better translated dragon. Um, it means dragon It's interchangeable with the word dragon And dragon is probably more of what we imagine Than a snake on the ground Or hanging out in a tree um, It is In Revelation twelve nine. There's a reference to the same dragon It says, and this is Greek, not Hebrew But it's still the same character It says, the great dragon was thrown down That ancient serpent Who is called the devil and Satan The deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So that tells us that this ancient serpent was the devil and also dragon. They're interchangeable. They go together. There's a legend, and I'm going to be honest, this is a legend, a Jewish legend, but it comes from a, a book called the Book of Moses. But in this Jewish legend, uh, the devil approaches this dragon And the dragon is the highest of beasts, but he's been placed below man, and he doesn't like it. And the devil comes and says, hey, I know how to get you. I know how to bring him down. And the dragon says, I can't lie. You know, I'm, I'm made perfect. I can't lie. And the devil says, you let me enter you. I'll be a lying voice, and you be the face that the woman sees. And so the woman sees the dragon that she's familiar with, but Satan speaks for the dragon and lies. So is that true? Who knows? But that's not biblical, but interesting way to think about it from, uh, Jewish legend. But Satan means adversary. He's not a feeling. It's not a, uh, a sense or an emotion or anything. It means adversary. Literally, he is an active angel. Only one, but an active angel. Father of lies, Lucifer, accuser, destroyer, beast, uh, tempter, enemy, all terms used for him. He imitates an angel of light, all terms used for him. In fact, Ephesians 2.2 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Paul said the spirit that is now at work, now at work, all right? If First Peter five eight uh, Peter calls him a prowling lion doing what you know seeking who he can devour so he's not like a feeling he's not a sense he's not the bad things in the world he's an active player Isaiah fourteen thirteen tells you what happened how he got that way it says uh, Lucifer said in his heart I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God I will set my throne on high I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Same thing he's tempting Adam and Eve with, by the way. Same exact thing, right? And notice Satan doesn't go straight to the tree and point at this tree. What does he do? He gets her to look at it. Like he gets her to point it out. And she says all of them are good for us, but this one. So she literally points straight at it. Now... The funny thing, or not funny, but in death, all of us in death, um, we seek salvation. And salvation is the flip. She had all trees. One was forbidden. Now, there's only one way to heaven. That's through Jesus Christ, even though there are many out there that people claim life comes through. There's only one way, only one truth, only one life now. To find salvation through. And, and much like Adam and Eve who wanted every tree and the one that was forbidden. I think if God provided one million ways for us to find salvation, we would want one million and one. And call him mad. And, and be mad and call him bad because he didn't give us one more. But this is the first question in the Bible. Did God actually say? Same thing being questioned today, right? Is it really God's word? It's written by man. Can't really trust it. It's certainly not infallible. I mean, it's got mistakes in it. It's been mistranslated over the years. You know, he didn't really say it that way or he didn't really say that. That's the the original question and the question that we all still battle over today. Because if God did say this, what are the implications, right? What What does that mean? And Eve did acknowledge. Did you see that? She did acknowledge that he spoke. But was she accurate? She was real close, but she added something. She said, don't touch it. God never said, don't touch it. Maybe Adam told her that. Remember, Adam is the one that was given the command from God, and Adam must have told her. We talked about that last week. But Adam must have told her. So maybe he added to it, you know, like built a fence around a fence around a fence. Like don't even get close to that tree, you know. I don't know. We don't know. But there's a great quote from one commentator that says, Some commentators see this serpent's approach as a questioning of God. Has God said, others point more to a questioning of God's goodness. You don't mean to tell me that God has deprived you, do you? That's a good way to think about it. You don't mean to tell, like Satan is saying to the woman, You don't mean to tell me God's keeping something from you. Eve added to God's word, making him seem like over-strict, you know? And then Satan took away from God's word, making him seem like a liar. Oh, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. God's the liar. You're not going to die. It's interesting, the last four verses of the Bible, the whole book, the last four verses address this. In verse uh, 18, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. Now, I'm not breaking that down. I'm just pointing out that that's the end of the story. The whole book, and he's referenced in the beginning, he even mentions the tree of life, adding to and taking away from his word is the Key to it all. Good or bad. Everything. Knowledge. Tree of knowledge. Is knowledge bad? No. So what's the sin here? The sin is doubting God's word. Doubting his character. You know, changing his word. And then desiring to be like God and rule. Like make decisions for myself. Uh, I've heard this week a couple of phrases from some Spiritual leaders, one was God's word says that the righteous will rule like a lion. Another one said, wherever you set your foot, God will give it to you. Joshua 1 says so. Is that true? (laughs) Neither one. Neither one of those things is, is true. Not at all. So many religious leaders now that make God's word read the way they want it to. You know what I mean? The way that benefits them, the way that their own desires are achieved through whatever they say God's word says. And the result of that is you damage God's character. That's the scariest thing I can possibly think of. Like I'm not even joking. I'm just being transparent with you. It's one reason why I stay so heavy in the word and don't tell so many stories because I'm I'm too afraid of damaging his character. I want you to know who he is. I want you to truly know who he is because if I affect his character, it's going to affect the way you see him and then you might fall away one day when you realize the genie won't actually give you every all three of your wishes you know or however you for you know see him apparently to look so i just don't want that i want you to stay in his word i want you to know who he is but god himself has spoken second timothy 3 verse 15 or 16 this is a great passage if you don't know it you should know it paul said all scripture how much all scripture all scripture god's word is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Complete, like his word's enough to make you complete. His word is enough to equip you with all that you need, because he did speak. So go to verse 6. Let's keep going. Verse 6. So. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So maybe she's looked at it really close. Maybe she's even touched it now. Maybe she's pulled a piece down and holding it. I don't know. But she and she didn't die. Wow, I touched it. I didn't die. You know, so she took its fruit and ate and she gave some of it to her husband. What does it say? Might as well underline that one. Who was with her. So he's standing right there. This is not like Eve threw everybody under a bus and then went and cut, you know sucked her husband into it. He was standing right beside her, so he's heard the whole presentation from the the dragon and the whole thing. He's standing right there. So she pops it and hands it to hands it to him, and he eats. There's nothing wrong with her saying it was good and a delight and desirable. Why, why do we know that's not wrong? Yeah, but God made it that way, right? We just read he made the whole garden that way. He's, he made everything, said it's good, right? So that, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that Eve is determined that those qualities merit questioning God's motives. So because it's so good, because it's, because it's great, because it's whatever, that, that gives her, in her own mind, reason to question, like, well, what's God really doing here then? Why is God actually keeping this from her? What's he hiding? He's not being honest with me. He's keeping something back from me, and he's not telling me the whole truth. Straighten strategy again has not changed much. It hasn't changed much, has it? He makes us subtly question guys, uh, God, excuse me, and he makes us suddenly, well, maybe guys too, I don't know, but question God, and then turn our eyes onto something. Maybe for a second at first, maybe for a minute longer. And then before you know it, your eyes are starting to get fixed on something that you know is wrong. And then after a while, you start thinking, how can that be wrong? And the more you continue to look at it, the more you begin to find an angle that tells you it's not as wrong as you think it is. And before long, you're starting to think, okay, well, it's no big deal. Or worst case scenario, you start thinking, well, nothing's really going to happen if I do. Whatever that is. So verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. The result immediately is not that they dropped dead instantly. It says their eyes are open, And they knew that they were naked. Um, Just means they became intimate with shame. You know, we talked about this before last week, that being naked was no problem because there was nothing about their image that they were ashamed of whatsoever. Nothing sexual about it. They just weren't ashamed of their image in any way. Now they're full of shame. So that's the first feeling is that nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, it's not the fruit that opened their eyes here. It's not like it's, you know, peyote or some kind of, you know, drug or something that took them on this LSD trip or what. It's not that. It, it was the act. It, it was realizing disobedience. Actually performing it and now knowing disobedience. The tree itself doesn't have any power whatsoever. The tree itself is not some magical fruit that has a power. That's not the case. It's the act that they went through of doing this. But a change did occur. Satan wasn't entirely wrong. A change did occur. It did happen. They now understand sin and evil. They do. And knowing it is causing shame and guilt, and embarrassment, and exposure, and nakedness. Genesis 2.17, God told, we talked about last week, God told Adam before Eve was even created. In verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The day you eat of it, you'll die. The literal language there is die, die. So if you just read it straight in Hebrew, the way it's written is the day you eat of it, die, die. Or dying, die. Um, dying is not just when a man's spirit or a woman's spirit leaves their body. That's not, that's not all there is to dying. Dying is your spirit being empty of the spirit of God. First and foremost, remember God breathed into Adam. God breathed his Holy Spirit into Adam. Dying in the first point is your spirit being empty of the Holy Spirit. At this point in time, the Holy Spirit leaves them. He's out. And they immediately begin dying. Since then, according to all the scripture, Psalms all the way to Ephesians all the way through, we are born that way. Ephesians 2, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, like all the rest of mankind, dead, 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 dead. All of mankind, you were in that condition, is what he's saying. So from this moment forward, death has entered because God's Spirit is out. God's Spirit is out. When they ate the fruit that dying began, the Spirit of God left their spirit, and they feel nakedness, and they feel shame, and they feel fear. And Paul says their flesh is now in control. And it has been ever since. Your flesh is what tells you, if it feels good, do it. Your flesh is what decides for yourself what's going to be good and bad, which is what they wanted, right? It feels good, do it. And eventually, their body and their flesh will catch up with their spirit. And death will happen on all fronts. And don't miss this, because this one's huge. How many sins did it take for them how many sins did it take? One. One sin was enough to cause separation from God, death, and there's no balance of the good good that they did. No, he didn't look back and say, well, you know what? Y'all were good for so long that we'll just write off this one. Or your good has outweighed your bad because y'all have been nothing but perfect up until this one. That's not the case. The moment that one sin happened, death entered All of the world. And came to all of creation over that. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. Romans chapter 8, you can read on in there, but he talks about all creation being forced under the penalty of sin. And all creation, like yearning for the day when man is made new, when God makes all things new because... Creation was forced into it as well. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God of walking in the garden in the cool of his day. Before I go on, walking. What does that tell you? What does it mean to walk? Footsteps, right? They heard the sound of footsteps. So, I don't know what you envision here, but whatever you should be envisioning is God walking like a person. Perhaps the person, if you want to take your image of Jesus and put him there, that's fine because that's what we're talking about in a sense. God as a person present, and you're going to see this. We go throughout the Bible. You're going to see that happen a lot. This is not just a random one time, but in the very beginning, they were used to hearing his footsteps. It was not wind blowing through the trees. That would be, we heard your wind coming. They heard his footsteps. They knew he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man... Uh, And his wife, note it says his wife, they are married. We've talked about that, but they are together. It's not just the man and the woman. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, not to the serpent, not to the woman, to the man, and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I, again, I heard the sound and I was afraid. Problem number one. Like, what are you afraid? Never been afraid before. Uh, because I was naked and I hid myself. Now they already closed themselves with, you know, loincloth, whatever they made there. So when they're, when he's saying naked again, he's not saying I'm exposed naked, my body's naked. He's saying I am exposed before you. Okay. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Any chance God didn't know the answer to that question? Right. So don't miss this. God seeks them out. This is really cool. God seeks them out. He could have just said, well, you blew it. I knew you would. Wad it all up and throw it away. But instead, he seeks them out. Like he comes and he finds them. And he obviously knew, but he comes anyway. Even in their sin, even in their shame. Asking them, who told you you were naked? No, nope. again, obviously he knows what's gone down. So, what is he asking them for? Repentance, yeah, some form of like, hey, look, man, I, I got to confess what happened here. It's an opportunity for you to be honest and confess your sin, which is grace. That he would do that and not just absolutely annihilate him. Verse twelve. Then the man said. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Most say Adam blamed the woman. That's not true. Who does Adam actually blame? God. The woman you gave me. Like, you gave me her. It's your fault. I mean, he literally blames God for giving him the, giving him the woman. But that's not true, obviously. Uh, the woman then blames who? The serpent. the serpent. I will give the woman credit, though. At least the woman said, I did eat. So at least she owned it right out of the gun there. But again, so relevant today. We're all looking to blame somebody else. Uh, I know in the uh, school where uh, Coach and Molly and myself, and uh, where we are, I know I see it all the time. It's all about how I was raised. Or oh, you, you know, I grew up without a dad, or I grew up without a mom, or I grew up without either, or I grew up on the streets, or I've been around gangs, or it's been, you know, peer pressure, whatever it is you want to say. That's a pretty story. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm just saying, in terms of sin, it doesn't matter. You are responsible. And sin is not bad. It's deadly. Like it's. Deadly. Listen, blaming somebody for your sin is like saying, uh, he told, told me to pour gasoline on myself and light it. Does it matter if he, somebody told you that or not? You're the one, if you survive for the moment with scars for the rest of your life looking horrific, and you're the one that's gonna have to deal with that and ultimately die from it. It's, it is, uh, you think I'm being dramatic, and, and maybe a little bit I am, but look how God responds to it. He doesn't take it lightly at all. Look what he says. Verse 14, then God said to the serpent, so he turns to the dragon first, serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. First time you see those words in the Bible. Cursed are you. Above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. So all of the beasts are cursed. Sin enters the world. But he's cursed above them all. And he says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, this is not about a snake's diet, because if you know anything about snakes, do they eat dust? No, not at all. And this is not about slithering and all that stuff. It's about humbling. It's about being mashed down, being pushed down. In English, we do the same thing. If I were to say, you know, eat my dust, you know, you would not think, or bite the, he bit the dust. You know what that means, right? He, he died, right, in English. So Hebrew is the same way. It's a figure of speech. Micah 7, verse 16 is an example where God is talking to the, these rebellious nations. And he says, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears will be deaf, and they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Same thing. He's not telling them they're going to literally get down and lick dirt. He's talking about that humbling, that being broken and pushed down. And the serpent the dragon here was more crafty. He was above all the others, but he was below man. And now he's going to be reduced to this ultimate humble position of, quote, eating dirt. And the same fate belongs to Satan, who was above all angels, it says. And will ultimately be brought down in the same way. He says... In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's going to do that? God is, right? Don't miss that. doesn't say that, okay, now y'all aren't going to get along. God's saying, I'm going to put something there. And between your offspring, that that word is seed, and her offspring, that word same as seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, God's response here is not just death, although that's coming because he said it would. It's not just death. It's also spiritual warfare on earth among his creation. He's literally saying this war is now going to be among you. It's going to be where you are. We're not just fallen. We face an enemy now. If that were not the case, then it would have been over with Adam and Eve. And Satan would have gone on somewhere else but God God brought the war here Satan started it you can look at it however you want to look at it that's not the point God's in control so that's the way that's the way it is uh, Ephesians 6:12 Paul wrote we don't wrestle with against flesh and blood but against rulers against authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places that's the result of God's first words here in this curse he says Curse is not about women being afraid of snakes. That's not what it's about. Because I know plenty of women who love snakes. And I know plenty of dudes who are terrified of snakes. All right, It's not about that. It's a prophecy. It's a curse and a gospel blessing in the same sentence. At the moment that sin enters the world, uh, this curse is aimed at the beast inside the beast. Which we know to be Satan. Just as the serpent is... Symbolically connected with Satan in the curse. The woman is symbolically connected with the bride of Christ or the bride of God. Which would be Israel for so long and then the church. War will be with the dragon and the woman. Do you see that? So between Satan and the bride. Could look at it that way. Revelation 12 says a lot about that. talks about the woman then being Israel. And the dragon that chases her and pursues her. Not going all into that, but it's in there. But from this moment on, war on God's people begins, and you're gonna see this as we go through. It starts right out of the gun. Who are their kids? Cain and Abel. What are they famous for? One killed the other, right? Immediately it begins and it carries on. By the time you get to the flood, it tells you that when they, when, when the, that, that, that the, Women were having lots of children and darkness and wickedness was all over the earth to the point that God wiped it out. But he preserves life and it continues on. By the time you get to Pharaoh and the people of Israel are 400 years in slavery and they're uh, all of a sudden killing their children. Haven't telling them throw your children in the Nile. It continues on and on and on this persecution and attack of the serpent on the people of God. The war is vicious and it keeps going and is frequently aimed at children. Matter of fact, in Jesus' birth, there was a rule from Herod to kill all of the firstborn males. Why why the focus on the kids? Well ultimately there's two statements being made here. I look back at the verse about the warfare. It is between the dragon and the bride, and it'll be ended by her seed and his seed. Do you see that? There's singular words. Offspring, seed Same word. By her seed. Now, the reason why I keep saying seed instead of offspring is because seed is a very important word. You know biology. Women don't have a seed. Men do. Women have an egg. That's how it happens, right? So to say that the woman has a seed, the seed of a woman is a foolish statement. Women don't have that. To say that his seed would make sense, but her to say that, to say that is weird. It's pointing to what? Virgin birth. Right there from the very beginning is pointing to a virgin birth. By the time you get to Isaiah 7, Isaiah outright says a virgin is gonna give birth. And why is a virgin birth necessary? Is that God just showing out? No. It's necessary because anybody who's gonna save sinners has to be sinless. Anybody who's going to save sinners is going to have to be sinless. And we're all born of Adam, so we're all sinful by nature, but not Jesus. He was born of a woman, but not a man. The seed came from God, the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't inherit that sin. If the seed of woman is Jesus, then ultimately we know that. They didn't know that then, but we know that. If that be so, then who's the seed of Satan, or the sea of the devil. Well, I believe that's the beast or the Antichrist. We're not going into end times yet, but all the way back in the beginning here, I think that's the case. Even in John's letters, in the New Testament, John talks about uh, there have been many Antichrists already. John said even at his time, there already had been. Think about Pharaoh, like I said, killing children. Think about Herod killing children. Uh, think about Nero of Rome, who would come around in his time, who would light the people of God on fire as torches to make the streets light up, uh, who would burn down all of Israel. Think about that. And since then, there's been tons of them too. We could obviously go straight to Hitler you know, or any number of others where Satan is working to produce this seed, I guess, that will end the bride, that will bring the bride to a close. And Revelation 19 talks about Jesus returning to destroy that person. You can read it in your own time. Uh, A showdown. The final conflict between uh, Jesus and this person. This beast. This Antichrist we call it. That that promise is all the way back at Eve though. That's the cool thing. It's all the way back at Eve. That word bruise in Hebrew. It can mean bruise or crush. It's used both ways. It's not used a lot in the Bible. But when it is used. It's used as bruise or crush. So when he says he's going to. Bruise your heel, or like the idea of being biting at your heel, that pictures the suffering inflicted by Satan, we could say, on the cross. And why would it be on his heel? it didn't stab his heel. It's figurative. It's the idea that what he did was destructive and hurt, brought him down in a sense, but not permanently. Not permanently. What happened after the cross? Resurrection, you know? He rose from the dead. It turned out that he really was only biting at his heel because he rose from the dead. Uh, but the promise of that seed crushing the dragon's head is another story. Partially he did that when he rose because he took authority back. The authority over death and all of that back from Satan. Uh, that's part of it. But then the other part will be when he returns to reign. We talked about in Revelation 19 when he ends that. So, remember, this curse is not concealed from the devil. He said it to him. He's telling the devil this. So it's not concealed from him. He's speaking it to the dragon, the curse to the dragon. So it's no surprise. We're going to finish here real quick. I know we're a little long, but I'm almost done. So it's no surprise that when God now turns to the woman, after just predicting that a seed from her own body would destroy the works of the devil, um, he addresses childbirth. Look at verse 16. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So maybe there was no pain in childbirth before. I don't know. That's what it sounds like. But now, every time she, or every time any woman brings life into the world, the pain is going to be a reminder of sin. But it's also going to be a reminder of the hope and the promise of salvation in both ways. And it's no surprise, too. That marriage gets affected in this. It's not just a curse from from God. It's the result of seeking self over God. So they were seeking their own desires over God's desires. So certainly, if I would seek my desire over God's desires, I'm highly likely to do it over my wife's. Why would I honor my wife's desires over mine if I won't even honor God's? So it begins to create this battle for rule in the marriage, and cooperation, self sacrifice. Those are that's history. Look at verse 17, Adam, to Adam he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. So in other words, he's saying, rather than tell her, hey, put that down, we're not supposed to eat that, you took her, authority. you made her the authority over me. You listened to her over me, is what God's saying. Not saying her fault, he's at Adam, not at her, he's at Adam. He's saying, you put her up over me. And then he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. So the ground is already cursed because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So man wants to rule without God? Fine. You can spend your lifetime clawing at the ground to get food. It's almost like a maddening life, too. He's saying you came from the dust, you're going to work the dust, begging it for life, and then you're going to return to it anyway. It's just a reminder that all success comes from God, right? Curse on the woman reflects the family and the relationships. The curse on the man reflects work and job and success. Tell me those things are not still relevant today. I'm I'm just saying. Last couple of verses, verse 20. The man called his wife Eve, that means life, which is awesome, by the way, that he named her that. I mean, if it were me, if I'm honest, I'd be calling her death. You know what I'm saying? Like, after what just happened, but he turns around and calls her life. That's awesome. Because she was the mother of all living, which makes clear, by the way, we all came from her. There's no creation of multiple peoples. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So this is the key. They sowed fig leaves, God took a life. Don't get an animal skin without death. They sowed fig leaves, God took a life. We see, treat sin as though we can just fix it or cover it. It's deadly, it's horrific. It causes death. Substitutionary atonement, that's what's going on here. Leviticus 16, you can read it in your own time. Isaiah 53, you can read it in your own time. Second Corinthians, read it in your own time. God's word said death would come With sin, and he must honor his word. He has to honor his word. Death comes with sin. And he does honor his word, but through an innocent animal for the sins of man. The death of innocence covered their shame, and it covered their sin. That's what atonement is. It's not removing it. It's just covering it. And it's also pointing to how the seed of woman... Is going to defeat sin and Satan through atonement. But he won't just cover it, he'll make things new. And this is what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. And this is why later on God says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That's because to deal with sin requires facing death. They go hand in hand. They have to be shed blood. So let me ask you this Does it make you mad? A little bit that he killed an innocent animal? It should. It should. But mad at your sin, not at him. It's real easy. It didn't have to happen. Just stop sinning. Just don't sin anymore. We get mad enough about things like this, but not mad enough to actually change our lives. You know? It should make you sick. It should make you want... It should break your heart. Does it break your heart that he sacrificed his only son? Does that make you as upset about as a lamb? Obviously it should. And what made God atone for sin? What made him do it? Nothing. That's called grace. Nothing. Whatever the physical garden was, it was lost after the flood. Um, There's a reference to him keeping them from the tree of life there. You can read it in your own time. But there's a reference to him keeping them from the tree of life. And some say that's because he pushed them out of the garden in order to prevent them from eating that and living eternally in sin like the fallen angels did until he dealt with sin. So uh, I'm not going to run into all of that, but I will say this. He put angels, cherubim is a plural word, he put angels around the garden to keep them from coming back in. Uh, that's because there's only one way back in that garden, and that's through Jesus Jesus is the word. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the door to paradise. Jesus is what it means to walk with God. That's who he is. The veil is torn. The, the way in is open through him. Um, so what do we do with this? Well, again, we need to be learning how to know his word. We need to learn to know his word. then we need to be knowing how to trust him completely. Like learning how to do that. That means you're going to have to place your life in his hands in some situations you may not like. But learning how to trust him completely. And I'm going to tell you right now, the cross is only good news for those people who recognize they should be on it. Um, It's those who recognize they're naked and they're exposed and they need forgiveness. Those are the people. That need the gospel, that need covering. And the beauty is that God will cover you, not just with blood or animals, but with his own son. That you become a child of God who reflects Christ. And then today, listen, if that's you, man, how do you get there? Simple. Tell him. Hey, look, I'm 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 naked here. You know, I'm I'm a sinner. I know it. Tell him however you want to tell him. It, Hey, trust in who he is, who he says he is. Hey, I believe you are who you say you are. I trust that. I I don't have all the answers. I can't explain it, but I believe you are who you say you are. And then trust that what he did was enough. What you have done is enough. Tell him. You tell him. Don't tell me. Tell him. Uh, John, you want to come back up? We're going to do one more song. I know we're a little bit long, but we'll finish up here. And um, Let me go ahead and pray. And when we sing, listen, I I just want you to take a few minutes. The only reason we sing afterwards is so you could take a few minutes to let this process and sink in before you just race out the door. But if you want to come up and talk, you're welcome to. uh, I'll be up here. Josh will be up here now or after any time. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be in it, to teach it, to study it, to read it. Covered a lot today. Took a long time, and I'm sorry for that in the terms of eating the time, but I'm not sorry for that in terms of being in your word, Lord. I pray that you help that be something that sets into our heart. Me too. Help us, Lord, be able to go out of here chewing on what your word says in such a way that we are changed by it. God, I pray if there's anybody today that's struggling with who you are, that's struggling with giving their life to you, Father, I pray you please let them do it. Please let them do it today. Open their eyes and cover them in Your Son. Lord, we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.